Katie, Katie, Katie. Hey Jesse. Can we can we still hang out? Is this is this it for us now that you're you've gone Hollywood? I don't know if we can hang out. I mean, I have some new friends here. They're I gotta say, more attractive than you and much richer. What what friends could you possibly be talking about? Just my friend Bill. Bill Clinton? You probably haven't heard of him before. His name is Bill Maher. <laughs> wow. What was uh what was this like? What was the experience like? Tell me everything. Okay, so as people who are listening to this might know by now, I was on uh, real time with Bill Maher. We're recording this on Friday, so it was a week ago today, and it was a it was a, a very good experience. This was something that I had been stressed about for literally over two years. Um, so I was <laughs> asked to be on the show on March thirteenth, twenty twenty, which happens to be the day that everything <laughs> shut down, and so I had like really two years of thinking, like at some point, you know, I'm going to get this call, and I'm going to have to do this fucking show, and I was I've been terrified of it for two years. I don't do a lot of public speaking. When I do do public speaking, it's usually in front of a small audience, not a, you know millions of people watching this and a studio audience. So I was very anxious about it, but it was much easier than I thought. Like the studio itself is much smaller than it appears on TV. And because of COVID, they have a smaller audience. So there was only about 80 people in the audience, which I think just took sort of a lot of the the pressure off. Um, overall, it was a it was a great experience. I was on with Andrew Sullivan, which was fantastic to have somebody who I'm friends with on the show, especially for the first time. But there was one thing, in one way, I think that it really did change me. How's oh, up? So I I know that this will surprise people because I sound aristocratic, but I don't actually come from money. I grew up in a, in a very middle class family. I thought that I was rich growing up because our town was had a lot of poverty in it, but it turns out, no, I really was not. I've, I've never been wealthy. I've never sort of had fancy things. Um, I, have a, I drive a used Subaru. You know, the nicest hotel that I usually get is a Holiday Inn. <laughs> and this was just totally different. I'd never flown first class before. I flew first class on this. They put you up at this fabulous hotel in Beverly Hills where I, I swear to God, I think the towels are made out of baby seal pelts. <laughs> and I was so sort of like anxious about this. And so like they, they offered a car to pick me up and drive me to the airport. And on the way there, I was like, no, 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 no. I'll just, you know, I'll just take the bus to the ferry, to the light rail, and then walk a half mile like I always do. Like, like don't put yourself out for me at all. Why? 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 That's like so performatively humble. Like it's it's HBO. They have a shitload of money. I, I know. It's not even, it's not performative. It's just, I have this like, well, also, frankly, it's easier to get to the airport from where I live if you take the ferry, the yeah. bus to the ferry to the light rail. It's just it's a faster trip than driving around the peninsula. But so, so, you know, and then I got there, I got to the airport. I tried to get into the Delta Sky Club. They wouldn't let me in. I thought that having a first class ticket was just like, they would just usher you in. No, it doesn't, turns out it doesn't work like that. <laughs> but it turns out that in first class, like you have real cutlery and a meal. You know, they serve drinks and actual glasses, like made of glass, not the little plastic cup that you would get at a dentist office to spit your swish into. <laughs> the whole thing, I just, I, I, I loved it. And I felt sort of ashamed of myself by this. But I, I think it changed me in the sense that like on the way back after two nights of this of living in this absolute luxury. You know, they had a car pick me up and take me to the studio and then a car pick me up and take me back. And they also had a car for Andrew and for Christina, Christine Emba, who was the, the other guest on the show. So all three of us are leaving from the same place, driving 10 minutes away and then driving back in our own separate, you know, town cars. It's fantastic. And then on the way back, I felt so like there was delays at the airport or for my flight. And I just felt like, 
I'm first class, bitches. Like there should be a <laughs> like normally I have such a when I walk through first class, normally I have such a sort of knee-jerk fuck you reaction to everybody there. And I think the worst thing you can possibly see is like a teenager or a child in first class. It just seems like it should be illegal. But on the way back, when I was waiting for my flight, I thought, you know, there should be a, there should be special seating for first class. And then on the way back, instead of, you know, taking the light rail to the ferry, to the bus, I was like, yes, I will take this car and please make my driver British. <laughs> I think it has just changed me in this just this fundamental way. I want to be rich now, Jesse. I really want to be rich. Before, before this, you had no idea that there was uh, other social classes above yours. I just didn't figure it would be that much better, but it turns out it is that much better. I mean, I, the people in this hotel, they must have thought I was the janitor because of the way that I dress. I just, I don't think I've, I've ever fit in some someplace less than I do in Beverly Hills, but I still fucking loved it. And what was the actual like recording like? Oh, that? That was fine. <laughs> <laughs> That's important. It was good. It was good. I mean, it was, you know, it was, I was nervous, but the, the feedback that I got was, was very positive, uh, which was great. And there's a little after party at the studio where people sit around on a, on a patio and, and drink and schmooze. And I talked to Bill for a while. It was, it was interesting. Uh, was Bill like in person? Was he cool? Was he chill? Yeah, yeah, we talked about smoking. I mean, weed. you can't say you can't say otherwise. Like, if he was a dick, you couldn't be like, "Yeah, he's a huge dick." No, I, I mean, I think that he probably is a dick sometimes because he's a rich guy, and who wouldn't be if you have that much money? But my experience with him was positive. Well, I thought you did really well on the show. I thought it was impressive. You. you didn't you didn't seem at all uh, nervous about it, and I was surprised he let you say so many racial slurs. But I guess it's HBO, <laughs> so there's you know, real it, Yeah, it's Vilmar. It's Vilmar. What racial slurs could I possibly say that he hasn't said a million times? That's true. Was there? Uh, you know, you guys only had so much time. Was there anything you wanted to say that you didn't say? There was one thing. I had a couple of uh, good jokes lined up that didn't that didn't fit in. But other than that, this was so we recorded the day that the that the decision on Roe v. Wade came down, and we were talking about. We didn't focus on it that much during the show, but we did talk about this sort of. Of course, we talked about kind of wokeness and politics. And one thing that I I don't think that I said, although I'm never going to watch the show, so maybe I did say it and blacked out that part. One thing that I have been thinking about a lot is that, you know, I think there's a number of people who listen to this show. There's another people, a number of people I follow on Twitter, people I'm friendly with in real life who have stopped voting for Democrats because of what they perceive as this overreach of wokeness. And this is something that, like, obviously, both you and I are concerned about this. We talk about this shit all the time. But when you look at the consequences of voting for Republicans, this is what you get. And I just think, like, if you're a feminist, for instance, who decides that you're going to support the Republican Party because Katanji Brown-Jackson can't define or won't define what a woman is, I think you're really shooting yourself in the foot. And I think you're shooting other people in the foot as well. There are bigger issues than the definition of a woman. I'm, I'm definitely concerned about this ideological creep into all institutions, into government, for sure. But I'm more concerned about women having the right to control their own bodies, women having the right to have an abortion. And there are lots of other cases that the Supreme Court have ruled on um, just in the past couple of weeks that I, I think are almost as troubling as the, as the Roe decision. And so as a person who is very critical of the Democratic Party, this is a very good reminder. This is what Republicans are. And I think people need to be realistic about this. Unfortunately, we live in a two-party system. This is what we have until fucking somehow a third party gains actual traction in this country, which I don't see happening anytime soon. These are our choices. And I think one is objectively worse than the other, and that's the Republicans. If you're a pro if you're pro-life, by all means vote Republican, like they stand for your values. But if you're if you're still a liberal, 
and you're choosing to vote for Republicans because of these issues, just think about it. Just think about what that does. Yeah. I mean, I'm obviously with you. I still don't think there's that many people abandoning the party because of like, quote unquote, wokeness. I think we are more likely to hear from them because oh, like, they think we'll lend a sympathetic ear. I don't think it's a big thing. But yeah, in addition to that, I also just think like every every instance I'm aware of at the state level of the Republicans like making their big stand against like wokeness or, or overreach on trans kid stuff, they always make it worse. It's always these poorly written bills that will have terrible collateral consequences. And in Florida now, it's like unclear that gay teachers can even like be out or have photos of their spouses on their desk because the law was written so poorly. This law that all these like crusading activist types like James Lindsay and Chris Rufo supported, it's just... I, I find the idea that you're going to vote the other way. I mean, look, people have different values. If you have genuinely different values, you think they can, the Republican Party supports your values, I can't tell you not to vote for them. But if you're generally liberal-minded, I, I agree with you completely, as much as I hate to say that. Yeah, Chris Rufo, I think, is actually conservative. He's he's a practicing Catholic. I think he is does hold No, that's what I'm saying. He is yeah. a conservative. But James the idea Lindsay, that you're going to like... Right. Yeah. James Lindsay is a fucking atheist or used to be an atheist. I don't know if he still is. I don't think that – I mean, maybe they represent his his newly discovered conservative values, but – I don't think James – this idea that he's a – there are people who are like genuinely liberal and worried about overreach. What what why What is like the track record with James Lindsay where we should take him at his word that he really wants like liberals in power when this is what he supports? I don't understand that. Yeah, but yeah. Whatever. Um, all right. Well, that – Mar thing was probably good, and uh, I guess I can no longer hold it over you that I got to go on Joe Rogan because this is I, <laughs> you've now done the most high profile thing of either of us. Well, Joe Rogan, I think probably has many, many more listeners than Bill Maher has viewers. Unfortunately, who knows? Uh, Katie, what I is, looked it up. What is the name of the <laughs> as you're on Bill Maher? You're like, am I being seen by more people than Jesse? By the way, I did the same thing. I've never listened to my. It's different because it's fucking eight hours long, but I've never listened to my uh, Rogan appear. It's just like you do it and yeah, you're don't done. Bother. It's not. Yeah. <laughs> Katie, what is the name of this increasingly upscale limousine-driven podcast? This is Blocked and Reported, and I'm Katie Herzog. And I'm Jesse Single. And uh, what are we going to talk about? Today, we are going to be talking about Rebecca Jones, a woman who became something of a hero for bravely exposing corruption in the state of Florida. Or did she? Or did none of that happen? Uh, but first, <laughs> but first, uh, how do you feel about a little bit of a plagiarism scandal? Did Ryan Project do something? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, a little inside baseball there. Uh, no, we're going to talk about a man named Kevin Cruz. Katie, what do you know about Kevin Cruz? Professor Kevin Cruz, I should say. I know he spends a lot of time on Twitter. Kevin Cruz is a Princeton University history professor who's uh, made something of a name for himself as Twitter's historian. You're correct. He's he's amassed like a half million followers, goes viral a lot. He also writes books. We got uh, White Flight, Atlanta and the Making of Modern Conservatism. One Nation Under God, How Corporate America Invented Christian America, and Fault Lines, A History of the United States Since 1974. Uh, that was co-authored with uh, Julian Zelzer, former professor of mine, actually. Um, oh. Kevin Cruz is also a contributor to the 1619 Project, which uh, I've never heard of. I don't know what that is. <laughs> so on Twitter, he, he does a lot of like snarky, partisan, liberal tweeting, and he also does sort of in-depth threads presenting the case against uh, right-wing historicizing and right-wing politics. A 2018 headline in the Chronicle of Higher Ed uh, summed him up nicely. How Kevin Cruz became history's attack dog. (laughs) I just love the juxtaposition of like a 
historian in a tweed coat, like looking at ancient documents versus a, a snarling attack dog. Does anybody ask history if it wants an attack dog? <laughs> right. History, do you need to be defended by a literal rabid dog? (laughs) Kevin Cruz, whatever else, uh, you know, he's polarizing because conservatives don't like him. He tweets a lot. Everyone can agree on that. I do get the sense he's like well-respected as a historian. Um, He also does sort of go after weak targets sometimes. Like Dinesh D'Souza, who's just a crazy person, he's gone after him a lot. Um, We'll include some some links to sort of representative threads in the show notes. He did one on sort of the history of racism in the GOP, more Dinesh D'Souza stuff. Here's a great one uh, that launched a thread about Jussie Smollett. Smollett. I love love this Smollett. I can never remember. You do the French pronunciation. Smollet, a fine Smollet. Um, I'm going to try to read this without laughing. So remember, this this is right after the Jesse Smollett uh, allegations came out. <clears throat> Hi there, journalists. I'm a historian who's written about white supremacists. So let me assure you that when a violent attack on an African-American man involves use of the N-word and the literal placement of a noose around his neck, you can go ahead and call that racist. <sighs> I, I guess I'm just, I just want to know who... Among the people who thought this happened and, you know, it was taken seriously at first, who was the person who was like, you shouldn't call that racist? Like, does this person exist? Let's call that racially motivated. Racially motivated lynching, right? His next tweet. And hey, you're not going to believe it, but you can also use that term to describe an even wider range of white supremacist activity that doesn't check off every box in the definition of a hate crime. I know, I know, it might make Tucker Carlson sad. Be brave. Who is this for? I don't, it's so, it's just this, um, the smug style on Twitter where it's always like, um, expert here, here's why you're a fucking moron. That's, that's always the tone. It's like everyone else is dumb and these guys need to explain to us how smart they are. Uh Uh-huh. Let's see, uh, what sort of engagement he got on this tweet. (laughs) That first one has 75,000, almost 76,000 likes. I tried to, um, just out of curiosity, like I wanted to see if Cruz had ever tweeted about how badly he fell for that hoax. I guess a lot of people did, but I was curious if he'd like ever explained anything about it or like learned anything from it. He doesn't seem to have said anything about it. When Smollett came up, it was like in another context, but I guess a lot of people probably didn't like uh, reflect deeply on that. Hi there, historians, journalists here. This was obviously a fucking hoax. <laughs> Wait, who said that? I say, I'm saying that right now. Oh, you're saying that now. That's good. <laughs> Hi there. Hi, I'm an epidemiologist wandering far outside my air. <laughs> that always reminds me of the fucking, the, the uh, yeah, obviously Black Lives Matter's protests are okay during a pandemic. Duh, racism is a public health crisis. <laughs> it's just so fucking smug. Okay, so he's Cruz has always been quite active on Twitter. For example, between June 10th and June 14th, he sent 142 tweets and retweets. We yes, we paid trace tracing Woodgrains to check how many times people have tweeted. <laughs> since, since then, zero tweets. Zero tweets since June 14th. I'm writing this on July 1st. That would be like me or you going half a month without tweeting. It's unheard of. I mean, I he must be dead. That's the only explanation. As far as we know, he is alive and well. His career, however, might be in some peril because the same day as his last tweet, Reason Magazine published an article by Phil Magnus headlined, Is Twitter Famous Prince Dor- Prince Dor- <laughs> Princetorian? <laughs> he Princeton is very Princetorian. I'm just going to go with that. Is Twitter Famous Princetorian, Princeton historian Kevin Cruz, 
a plagiarist. Ooh. And uh, this guy, Phil, what would you say is not so Magnus? Magnus, yeah. And we've heard this name before, correct? Yeah, Magnus is a, a historian who's like basically pretty critical of a lot of liberal historicizing, liberal history. He's written critically of, um, you know, the 1619 Project. He's a major critic of that. He's the guy who sort of thinks, a guy who thinks that, um, you know, history's gotten too um, politicized in certain ways, too politicized by the left. And so he wrote this article, and we should say going in, him and Kevin Cruz had gone at it in the past. They'd butt heads, which as we'll see, will we'll become a factor here. But in this article, Magnus, uh, his main claim is, quote, a key passage from Cruz's doctoral dissertation on the history of race relations in Atlanta displays uncanny similarities to a 1996 book on the same subject by Ronald H. Bayer, a now retired historian from Georgia Tech. Uh, I'll just read these two sentences um, and we'll also put them in the show notes so that you can um, tell. But here's the excerpt from uh, Ronald H. Bayer. For many reasons, Atlanta appeared to be a good city to study for such an analysis. It had a singular place in the South as a transportation and business center. It is a leading New South and Sunbelt center. It was a headquarters city for a number of civil rights organizations and is a center of black higher education. And it has hailed itself as a city too busy to hate, one of progressive race relations. Here's what Cruz writes in the introduction to his dissertation. Atlanta struck me as a logical site for such an analysis. It holds a singular place as the political and economic leader of the New South. It served as a headquarters for a number of civil rights organizations. It has been a center of black higher education. Furthermore, Atlanta has hailed itself as the city too busy to hate, one of progressive race relations. Uh, Magnus also includes like a visual capturing the similarities that makes the case pretty compellingly. And he explains that some of these passages in a slightly altered form also made their way into Cruz's book, White Flight. And then Magnus goes on to list two other examples of plagiarism via sort of inadequately cited uh, paraphrasing. Yeah. So the example that you read there, that seems obvious. I don't know. It's It seems like it's obvious plagiarism. It would have been really easy just to say, as bare notes, yeah. blah, blah, blah. Like it doesn't hurt you at all to, to cite somebody. It's not a bad thing. This is like clearly the most indefensible one because like it is true that um, in the course of copy editing or just a writer's own sloppiness, quotes can sometimes disappear and footnotes can disappear. So if it was an exact quote, that would be one possible explanation. But in this case, he clearly altered right. it slightly, slightly. And it's just baffling that he would do that uh, in a doctoral dissertation. So part of what makes this a little bit spicier is uh, I guess it's inevitable given how much Kevin Cruz tweets that there there is a tweet about this because – so, um, yeah, in 2017, David Clark, who's this like genuinely fashy Trump figure, Sheriff Clark, crazy dude, he had his own uh, plagiarism scandal. And Kevin Cruz said on Twitter in 2017, in response to, I think it was Andrew Kaczynski of CNN, if he wants someone with more credentials to say it, I'm a professor. This is textbook plagiarism. We'd expel a student who pulled this. So I'm, I'm glad he, he noted his credentials because there's no way anyone who doesn't have a PhD would be able to tell what plagiarism is. Right. Similarly, we need a professor to tell us that if someone is lynched while the N-word is being screened at them, that's racist. It's just... It depends on the context, Jesse. Yeah, exactly. Useful stuff all around. Uh all right. So, yes, Magnus and Cruz are not pals. Uh, Magnus has a history of butting heads with Cruz. Uh, he had a book against the 1619 Project, a whole book. He also had a scathing review outlining what he saw as flaws and careless scholarship in one of Cruz's books. Um, there's an article in Plagiarism Today, which I did not know that existed. That's a great fucking <laughs> – you don't you don't have a subscription to that? I don't have a subscription. I, I will often copy and paste articles from plagiarism today and just publish them under my own byline. <laughs> um, the most – so like 
there was a lot of people staying fairly quiet on this because Cruz really is like a liberal darling. Uh, and there was a, a pretty a notable defense of him from a professor, former history professor named L.D. Burnett. She was defended by um, fire, actually, after he, she was fired in sort of an academic freedom case we'll link to. Uh, she wrote on Medium uh, an article, Is It Plagiarism? And she basically says, like, sure, those six sentences appear to be plagiarized. But she also just highlights like Magnus has ulterior motives and that this is a politicized fight. And there was a fair amount of that. Like if you clicked around on history Twitter, I'm not saying everyone did this, but there was a lot of like, well, it's reason. Well, it's Phil Magnus. Right. So like you need to be careful here. And I, I really liked what sort of uh, Matt Iglesias said. He was like, either the dude's right or he's wrong. I don't understand why we have to, why there's suddenly all this context. And it, it seems pretty obvious to me that like, if a conservative or right wing, like there's still an investigation, there could there could still be an explanation for this. Oh, I know, I know. He took Ambien, uh, went to sleep, and then wrote it while he was in an Ambien haze. He printed it out, and he didn't save it on a hard drive. He knocked uh, a beer onto it. <laughs> Certain words were too fuzzed out, and he had to try to remember what they had said, and he accidentally paraphrased. Yeah, and so on. <laughs> the uh, the quote brackets on his computer were stuck. Exactly. Yes. Uh, not working. So, I mean, my only point here is like, it seems pretty obvious to me that if, if Phil Magnus had plagiarized six sentences, there were, maybe there's just human nature. I guess everyone does like treats their friends and enemies differently. I do not think liberals would be calling for context and forgiveness and time if Phil Magnus did this. And I don't think it's helpful. You and I have both seen this thing where it's like, okay, well, maybe their point is fair, but they're bad, so we can't accept their point. That's not an intellectually healthy way to go about the world. Right. And this happens all the time. And, you know, I think this happens with him all the time, and both of us have talked about our gripes with some of his coverage in the past. But, for instance, on the Weespaw story, which we covered in, a, in another pair, in another episode, and, you know, the, to, like, long story short, a a person who identified as a, as a trans woman was in a bathroom at a spa, and some women complained that she had her penis out. And Andy No broke the story that this person was a had a record as a sex offender. But it's Andy No, and so people just dismiss it. And this happens all the time. It happens on both the left and the right. You just say, this outlet or this person is bad. Therefore, we will not take anything that they say seriously. Yeah. And um, it's just it's – not, it's not good because it gives you excuses not to like clean up stuff on your own side, not to take opposing arguments seriously. Of course, conservatives are doing the opposite here. They're like – they're all about investigating it. Ted Cruz <laughs> – uh, jumped in on Twitter. These are serious charges that merit a full investigation, he tweeted, tagging in Princeton, oh uh, among others. So you definitely want a sitting U.S. senator attempting to intervene in plagiar individual plagiarism cases at private universities. I'm sure Ted Cruz would do that for any definitely. professor. He's just very concerned about plagiarism. Did Ted Cruz say anything when Melania plagiarized Michelle Obama's speech? <laughs> I'm guessing no. Here, here's the actual Glacius thing. I, I couldn't find it. Scrolling back to find the past week's worth of discourse, capital D, of course, about this, one common view seems to be that the criticisms are, quote, bad faith, end quote. But why does that matter? What Phil Magnus uh, says is either true or it isn't. The conduct alleged is either okay or it isn't. As usual, Iglesias is correct because he's a you know a white dude bro fascist himself. Uh, mm -hmm. This whole, like, it's a bad faith criticism. There are bad faith criticisms, uh, but... In this case, it's pretty straightforward. He seems to have plagiarized, and uh, plagiarism is usually frowned upon within academia. Do you think that he should have disclosed like a little note within the text, like I hate, I fucking hate Kevin Cruz? <laughs> I think any I think historians already know that, but I think like there should have been a footnote every sentence 
And then it's just a different mean name he's calling Kevin Groves. Piece of shit. <laughs> Asshole. Libtard. Have you uh, ever had the opportunity to report on someone who you fucking hate? Um, that's interesting. I always, I never know how to handle that. Cause like, there's like, no, I mean, not really, but, but it's tricky to know like what the, what do you have to disclose? At what point do you viscerally dislike someone that you so much that you just shouldn't report on them? Cause like in classical newspaper reporting, if you'd had like a brief squabble with someone five years ago, your editor would be like, you can't write about them. Yeah. Um, I did this once. So there's a reporter in Seattle named Erica C. Barnett, who I didn't have any problem with until she's like started publicly disparaging me. And I wrote about her in 2019 because she had written a piece for The Atlantic. Um, and the piece, it basically, this became a major story. She basically accused these, these like local conservative radio hosts of giving out Seattle City Council, a Seattle City Council member's phone number on air. And as she put in this, this Atlantic piece, relentlessly urging listeners to call her office. And this became this major local story because it was a story of this, this female city council member being harassed because of these conservative, you know, I think, I think Erica C. Barnett called them shock jocks. Well, it turns out that she likely didn't actually listen to the radio show where they apparently did this because they never did this. Anyway, um, they sued the Atlantic and her, uh, the Atlantic settled. I don't know how much they got, but I think they got, uh, quite a bit of money and this cost and then the city had to pay i think thirty thousand dollars in legal fees um so i wrote about that i did not disclose that i did don't like this woman um i guess maybe i should have and then after i wrote the piece she like wrote my bosses at the stranger demanding all of these retractions but didn't there's nothing factually wrong about it but in that case she was sort of able to say like look Katie Herzog doesn't like me, therefore don't take this seriously, which isn't fair. I mean, the reporting itself was fun, but it, it also is true that I don't like her. One thing that's interesting and bad, among many other things about being on Twitter, is like you inevitably have run-ins with so many people. And then it's like, I don't know, at some point, especially if you cover academic controversy, at some point you might want to write about it. Do you need to disclose two years ago he called me a chud and I was like, fuck you? <laughs> And I, 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 inundate, I inundated him with nude pictures of myself in the bathtub. Do I have to there disclose would, that? There would be very, very uh, long editor's notes at the, at the end of almost every article if that was required. I do think there are certain stories that people should stay away from just because of bias or the appearance of bias. I don't think that Phil Magnuson, uh, you know, reporting on Kevin Cruz's alleged plagiarism is one of them. It's not even like, and it's not like reporting. He's just literally saying, look at this book. Right. It's so straightforward. Yeah. I don't, I don't think there's yeah. a real conflict there. Um, have you ever plagiarized? I don't think that I have. I mean, I have, I have self-plagiarized, which I didn't realize was a, was like a thing until Jonah Lear um, got busted by friend of the pod, Michael Moynihan. This was a, a, a story that was recounted in John Ronson's book, So You've Been Publicly Shamed, um, where I had, you know, I'd written something and then I like copied a paragraph that I'd, I'd written for something and then post and then pasted it in another article. Um, and once I realized that that was apparently a, a, a major sin, I believe I um, got them taken off of the internet. <laughs> nice. <laughs> what about you? No. Um I've never plagiarized anything. One time, four score and seven years ago, I I considered it. Really? Is that parse? Why? What no, was the story? Not a joke. 
Oh, Forrest Gump. <laughs> Have you ever self-plagiarized? Have you ever read my Emancipation Proclamation? I don't think I've self-plagiarized because in Park to the Lair story, I... Careful. I don't think I knew what a BL was, but yeah, I'm careful. But And you can also just be like, as I said, blah, 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 totally. blah, blah, blah. Totally. Yeah. There is, I, the reason that I self-plagiarized was like at the time I worked at a place where I had multiple deadlines a day and at some point it was just like, I, I have written this thing, I'm going to do this. Still, apologies. A lot of bad journalism comes from multiple deadlines a day. It's not, yeah, it's not realistic. Yeah. And it's not even laziness. It's just like a straight up lack of time. Yeah. Um, anything else about Kevin Cruz or plagiarism or slavery or segregation or white flight? What do you think is his first tweet is going to be coming back? I hope it's, hey there, journalist. <laughs> hey there, plagiarist here. Uh, I don't know. I think it'll be curious what happens. I assume he's probably being investigated by like his publisher or his university or both. I. I don't think that that should, uh, I don't know. I think one instance of long ago plagiarism, we should have some forgiveness. I say that about a lot of things, but I obviously don't want his career ruined about it over it, even if he, if this is it. Because as people point out, now people are going to go through all his work. And totally. Usually people who plagiarize, and it sounds like he like definitely plagiarized once and there was some other questionable stuff. There'll probably be more. But if there isn't more, I, I, I hope his career wouldn't be ruined over this. It seems not right. Well, when he comes back, maybe he can uh, join that, that Discord that, uh, plagiarist ryan broderick has with um, a bunch of other tech reporters can't wait i'm really looking forward to that i'm definitely going to pay for access to it yeah for sure should we do housekeeping let's do it all right we're uh, introducing something a little bit new this week uh basically once in a while we're going to tell you about a podcast we really like and then that podcast will tell their listeners about us it's just like a little reciprocal audience sharing thing we're being like very strict about this. We're really only doing it for podcasts that at least one of us uh, has listened to and enjoyed for quite some time. So this week, uh, we want to tell you about the Slate Political Gap Fest. The Slate Political Gap Fest can help you sort through the layers of nuance in the news. Hosts John Dickerson, Emily Bazelon, and David Plotz don't always agree with one another, but they do always deliver thoughtful debate with context and analysis. They navigate our current unstable political terrain, and they do so with the kind of informal or reverent discussion that is like what journalists share after hours over drinks. Subscribe to Slate's Political Gap Fest for the fireworks, the debates, and the cocktail chatter wherever you get your podcasts. Uh... I, a, I really like this podcast. I listen, I do listen to it regularly. B, Bazelon, you know, now's a good time to get into Bazelon because her piece on the trans kids was so good. And C, wait, am I doing letters or numbers? One. Uh, C. D, Q, they do at the end of every episode, they talk about what they're drinking or are going to drink, which I really like because alcohol is great. And it's, you know, what gets me through the day from 9 a.m. on. So we should do something like that, maybe with like hallucinogenic drugs. I wonder what their audience is going to think when they promote our podcast. I, okay. I think, no, I think their audience <laughs> is like the sorts of people who comment on Bazelon's New York Times on, on her article on Trit, like just normie liberals. Who, so you're saying that they're over 40. <laughs> I mean, we're almost over 40. That's true. Nothing wrong with that. Uh, yeah. Check out Slate Political Gap Fest. Also, you can reach us at podcast at gmail.com. Blockchainreported.org is our website. Most importantly, if you sign up for $5 a month or more, you get three extra episodes a month, as well as various other perks. Uh, and our subreddit, where there's always a lot of engaging conversation going on. We're over 8,000 members on the subreddit, or, or Soft and Chewy, our faithful moderator, got it up to that point. That is blockchainreported.reddit.com. Katie, anything else we should plug? Uh, check out Katie on Bill Maher. Check out my newsletter, jessysingle.substack.com. Anything else? Rate and review us on iTunes. Rate, we don't have – iTunes doesn't exist. We've been through Whatever, this hundreds of times. <laughs> Apple Podcasts brought to you by ExxonMobil. <laughs> uh, 
uh, yeah, do all those things. Okay, next we're going to be talking about Re- Rebecca Jones, a woman who, depending on you ask, may be a hero or maybe a con artist. Uh, Jesse, have you heard of Rebecca Jones? I vaguely remember that she heroically rescued America from cooked coronavirus stats that DeSantis vomited out into the public discourse. Is that the more or less the storyline? Yeah, so- something like that. So she's a geographer and a data scientist who was working with the Florida Department of Health's COVID-19 dashboard at the beginning of the pandemic. The dashboard is basically an online tracking program for COVID cases. Um, And then in May 2020, she was fired by the Florida Department of Health for what Jones claimed was a refusal to manipulate the state's raw COVID-19 data so that it would look like the state's reopening plan was more effective than it actually was. Here's how she put it. She said that she was asked to, quote, manually change data to drum up support for the plan to reopen. And she tweeted that Florida's deputy secretary for health, quote, told me to delete cases and deaths. She later deleted that tweet and tweeted, quote, deleting deaths was never something I was asked to do. I was never I've never claimed that it was. And then she deleted that one, too. This would have been. This is a huge scandal, like literally erasing deaths for political purposes. And Ron DeSantis, uh, you know, a guy with national political ambitions who uh, his his COVID policies were very, well, I want to say liberal in the sense that there weren't many, but they were conservative. Lax. They were lax. Yes. Right. So this would have been like a this was considered like an incredibly massive bombshell scandal. Absolutely. And she re- received this massive wave of positive media coverage and support for her active hashtag resistance. NPR covered this extensively and sympathetically, as did many other outlets. The basic story was that Jones claimed that she was fired for being a whistleblower, while Ron DeSantis' office claimed that she was fired for insubordination. And I imagine that most readers hearing about this on NPR, reading about it in The Times, or watching it on CNN would assume that DeSantis' office was the one that was lying. Do you think that's a correct assumption? Yeah. Or a fair assumption? Yeah. I can, yeah. Yeah. Who's more likely to be lying? This random woman who you've never heard of until now or Ron DeSantis? Okay, so after she was fired, she started her own competing dashboard. She also filed a whistleblower complaint against the state. And so in December 2020, so six months later, six months of her being lauded as a hero, armed law enforcement raided her home and took her computer in order to find out if she was the person who sent a message to a state planning group on an emergency alert platform that urged people to speak out about how Florida was responding to COVID. So this was a message that went out like to a specific group of people using an emergency alert platform, and it said... It's time to speak up before another 17,000 people are dead. You know this is wrong. You don't have to be a part of this. Be a hero. Speak out before it's too late. So state officials claim that the message was traced to an IP address associated with her account. She denies sending it, to which I say, okay, sure. (laughs) She also posted video of this raid, and this was, of course, met with overwhelming outrage uh, against the Stannis and support for her. She was named one of Fortune Magazine's 40 Under 40, and she was awarded the Forbes Technology Person of the Year. Uh, Twitter lawyer Ron Filipkowski, he resigned from some state commission in support of her. He posted his resignation letter on Twitter. Um, It reads in part, 
I have been increasingly alarmed by governor's response to the COVID-19 pandemic. I believe the policy of the state towards COVID is reckless and irresponsible. I remained in my position because health policy was unrelated to my job at the on the JNC, which is this uh, judicial circuit thing that he was on. However, recent events regarding public access to truthful data on the pandemic and the specific treatment of Rebecca Jones has now made the issue a legal one rather than just medical. So very brave of him. Um, Jones wrote an op-ed about this in the Miami Herald. Here's a quote from that. Never let the fear of retaliation temper your desire to be a good, honest person. I will continue to speak tooth to power to provide critical information on coronavirus and environmental issues and never allow a man so devoid of empathy and humanity silence me. And of course, that man was Ron DeSantis. Right. So at this point, she's really considered a hero by many people, including herself. And after the raid, she starts a GoFundMe for her legal dis- defense. Um, at this point, it's raised over $325,000. She had another GoFundMe that I was unable to find that also raised apparently an astronomical amount of money. But then things started to fall apart. As much support as Jones got from the very beginning, some people were skeptical of her, especially on the right. The New York Times did a good job covering this. Here's a quote from one of their stories. But Miss Jones has not been universally embraced as a whistleblower. Some critics have dismissed her lack of public health training. Others have been made uncomfortable by the attention she has sought, sometimes tagging late-night host Stephen Colbert, for example, in her Twitter post. She says it is a, a gag meant to bring levity to her dark social media feed. Her dashboard shows a higher total number of cases than the state's official records because it includes the number of positive antibody tests, something the Department of Health and outside epidemiologists do not recommend. Miss Jones has reacted defensively to some of their criticism on Twitter. And then there's also this paragraph from that same Times piece. The search warrant served this week did not represent Miss Jones' first brush with the law. She faced a number of criminal charges in Florida, including criminal mischief and violation of a domestic violence injunction, all involving a relationship with one of her former students when she was a graduate assistant at Florida State University. None of them resulted in conviction, but last year, Tallahassee prosecutors charged Miss Miss Jones with cyber-stalking the man. Yikes. Okay. So that story itself is probably lurid enough for its own episode, but basically in 2019, she was charged with stalking an ex-boyfriend. This was covered by the Gainesville, Florida NPR outlet. They reported um, that she published a 68-page document online discussing the private details of her relationship with this former boyfriend slash student and, quote, including explicit text and nude photographs. The outlet also reported that they had sex in a classroom in 2017 when she was a married professor at Florida State, or that's what he told police. She was fired from the university after threatening to give his roommate a failing grade uh, for reta- as retaliation. Um, and then Jones, oh my God. yeah. So apparently, this was a six-month-long affair, and he is the father of her child. That sounds pretty bad. Yeah. Here's a quote from the Gainesville NPR station piece. According to police, Jones wrote in emails to the man, "Quote: You're going to be famous. We're going to destroy each other. This is never going to end." She doesn't sound like a great. <laughs> I'm no environmental expert, but she doesn't sound like a great person. Okay, this was not actually her first arrest. In 2016, she was working at Louisiana State University, and she was arrested after she refused to leave campus and then resisted arrest and assaulted a police officer. She was apparently ordered to leave campus by Human Resources. I'm thinking she was fired by LSU, but I couldn't confirm that. Okay, yeah, she's a character. I don't know if she's the person. Like, maybe we should just, like, do a little bit of due diligence before we raise these people up as heroes. 
Okay, so uh, back to 2020, local and national media started to look more deeply into this case, and basically everything fell apart. Her former colleagues started speaking up and saying, basically, this isn't true. Florida's dashboard is basically on par with every other state's, and there are a lot of holes and inconsistencies in her story. And the most thorough takedown came from the National Review's Charles Cook. Uh, He wrote this in May 2021. He reported that right before she was fired, there was an internal complaint by her supervisor because, among other things, she was publishing data from the dashboard and talking to the press without permission. And she's a state employee, right? Yeah, you can't, absolutely can't do that. Right. Like, if you're going to do it, fucking leak some some documents or whatever and hide your tracks. Um, So after she did this, her role was changed. Basically, she was told to stop working on the COVID dashboard. And then the next day, she explicitly violated this instruction and actually crashed the dashboard by creating a new account for herself and then moving a ton of data into it. She didn't tell anyone that she did this. So while the IT department was busy trying to figure out what like what the fuck happened to their dashboard, she locked out the only other Department of Health employee with full administrative access to the dashboard. She locked him out of his account. This is all very suspicious. That's my take. <laughs> okay, so then when they figured out what was what was happening and ordered her to restore this guy's access, she instead of like doing what she was told, she gave him a lower administrative access to the to the site, so she remained the only person with full access to it. She told the department this is because of quote concer- security concerns. For some reason, they did not fire her immediately. And then a few days later, she sent out a mass email to everyone who used the dashboard, including people outside of the department, saying that her access had been removed because she refused to manipulate data. And so then the press picked up the story and she was fired three days after that. So she said she was fired for failing, for uh, refusing to manipulate data. But right before she was fired, there was this, she's literally locking one of her colleagues out of the account that he should have access to or she. Yes. So Charles Cook, he says that she, quote, single-handedly managed to convince millions of Americans that Governor Ron DeSantis had been fudging the state's COVID-19 data. And he appears to be right about this. The media who published her claims without doing any sort of due diligence are definitely to blame for this misperception. But she herself, like she started a conspiracy theory and then she profited off of it. So around the same time of the, as this, she also filed a restraining order against Christina Pushaw, who is governor, who is now Governor DeSantis's press secretary, after Pushaw wrote a blog post called "The Florida COVID nineteen whistleblower is a big lie." Then she falsely claimed that Pushaw violated the restraining order. Then <laughs> it never ends. In June 2021, she was suspended from Twitter for allegedly buying followers, and she is still suspended from Twitter today. Okay, so... That's the biggest crime of all. Right, right. Okay, so let's fast forward to May of 2022. Then the Florida Office of the Inspector General released its report based on her whistleblower complaint and basically found that all of her claims were unfounded. She still somehow managed to spin this as vindication and use it in her fundraising campaigns. So in one of her GoFundMe updates, she wrote, It feels like a massive weight taken off of me to be vindicated finally after all this time. All the efforts by the state to defame me and smear me and the failed attempts to discredit me with baseless claims have finally been been proven false. 
Okay, so by this time, the media coverage has almost entirely shifted, but I also noticed that many of the very outlets that gave her glowing coverage in the beginning of this basically didn't report on the Office of the Inspector General findings at all. And a few outlets have actually stuck by their narrative. For instance, the Daily Coast, which reported, quote, the report, which found Rebecca told the truth about the state ordering her to hide and delete data from public access, though contended that's not a crime, has been hailed as a victory in Jones' case, according to legal laws. Race. That's not true. It's just like, that's not even fucking true at all. Wait, so the report didn't find that she that she told the truth about being asked? No. I'm confused. They, it, the report just didn't find that, but then this outlet just reports the opposite? There was, so uh, we'll post a link. Jeez. You can look at the report itself. There's like some points where it's a little bit fuzzy, but there's like four like four claims and each one is they systematically knock down each one there was one that was like maybe neutral but it's like very clear that she was lying okay last thing rebecca jones is now running for congress against matt gates jesse here's a hypothetical for you you live in florida you have two options i live in florida throw myself in the ocean (laughs) no that is not an option you have two options matt gates or rebecca jones who do you vote for throwing yourself in the ocean is not an answer jesus Wow, that's a hell of a, like, would you rather, I guess, Jones? Because you just figured they're both horrible people and ideologically I'm closer to Jones. But wow, I think I understand Trump voters now. Yeah, yeah, that's a really tough one. I guess I would have to say Jones too, but it would be really fucking hard. I don't know. I don't know. Who's who's the worst person? Ocean. The ocean lure, the ocean calls, those wonderful sharks. It'll be over so quickly. 40 years on Earth is enough. 25 in my case. (laughs) You wish. Okay, so what does this tell us, Jesse? Well, uh, the media is bad. A lot of media is bad. There's a search for easy heroes and villains, and especially anything involving a hot button issue. Like this had all the hot button issues. This had Ron DeSantis, who liberals hate. Uh, I'm I'm definitely not a fan. It had coronavirus. It had that fight between blue and red states over how to fight coronavirus. It had a lack of due diligence. There's not really much of a tendency to look into these folks who pop up as like resistance heroes. I think that's really the main lesson here is like the resistance heroes, uh, more often, more often than you would think they have some grifty elements to them. Yeah. It sort of reminded me of the case of Michael Avenatti, who was like lauded as a hero, as a sort of resistance hero. I can't even remember why at this point, something to do with Trump. It was a fucking crook. Yeah. There's just like any... (laughs) Anytime there's like some sort of mass panic or outrage or anger, that's when grifters can really do their worst because people are like emotionally aroused and are searching for for heroes and they're scared. And it, it sounds really crappy what this woman did based on what you're telling me. Yeah, it's. It, I do think it's unfortunate that a lot of these outlets that gave her basically glowing profiles – have just totally ignored the fact that they were basically conned. I don't think any of her awards have been That's really right. crazy. Right. This made me think of a couple of like – well, one in particular, Me Too case, where there was like a lot of coverage when the dude was called out on Twitter, and then all this new evidence came out, and no one fucking revisited it. Which is like, what un- case was this? Gino Diaz. This is the a- Andy Signore one. Uh, what was his story? Andy Signore's is like, well, this might be a good segment at some point, but basically, he was accused of like doing something at a, co- a convention and many months and a lawsuit and leaked text messages later this woman just was she based on my interpretation she's just like total liar but none of the outlets who are like ooh Andy Signore the latest shitty man uh, seem to have gone back and like you know followed up with these new details that I think basically exculpate him um so, yeah, it's a problem. Have you ever had to do anything like that? Some, like, major correction on a story? There was one where 
God, I wish I could remember the details. It was some sort of social science controversy, and I was sufficiently convinced I messed it up that I basically just rewrote the whole thing and posted like an. This wasn't on like anything contra- like trans or anything like that, uh, and posted like a mea culpa, and I included a link to a screenshot of the old story just so people could like see what I'd done wrong and what I'd done. But yeah, that was the worst one. I wish I could remember the details. It was not on a su- sexy subject. What about you? Nothing like this, I don't think. I mean, there was I was conned one time when I worked at Grist. I was conned by somebody who was doing some sort of like trolling performance art who he said that he was a like a real estate agent who was uh, specializing in homes that like Florida homes that would be oceanfront because of climate change. And right. I did like like I looked at his LinkedIn. I talked to him on the phone. I did like a, a few things to verify that he was real, but he wasn't. Um, so that was pretty embarrassing. And I think things like that are, frankly, for a reporter, especially if it's something sort of inconsequential, are actually pretty. It's it's good because it it makes you paranoid. It makes you careful. Um, yeah, you should be paranoid. Right. I'm like before I publish something, I am constantly constantly afraid that i've gotten details wrong that i've gotten the big picture wrong constantly and so it makes you careful yeah uh this is a really crazy one i hope there's some good fault like some long magazine article about it at some point you should write it let's uh, check in with her gofundme see what she's at now i hope she's doing okay all right she is up to three hundred and twenty seven thousand nine hundred and seventy seven Good for her. What a brave woman. Yeah. yeah. You know, you could donate to like a family whose house burned down or like a child who needs a new kidney, but, or you could donate to Rebecca Jones. Oh, yeah. What a, what a grift. Uh, Anything else on this? This was totally fucking crazy. I think that's it. This has been Blocked and Reported. Thank you, as always, to Tracing Woodgrains for uh, so much production and research help. I'm Jesse Single, and remember, four score and seven years ago, we started a podcast. And I'm Katie Herzog. And also remember, if you're a Florida voter, you can always write in a candidate.